Hello, everyone, and welcome to Global Gurus, where every Friday we explore stories of international business and speak with industry leaders operating around the world. I'm your host, Philip Auerbach of Auerbach International. Thank you so much for joining us. If you're tuning in for the first time, we start each podcast with a running segment called Faux Pas Fridays, where we explore a funny blooper or a mistranslation that does not quite convey the professional image that your organization wants to project. And since today's guest has been involved with, uh, from an early age with business in Japan, I thought it appropriate to uh, give you a blooper from a Tokyo hotel, a sign in a Tokyo hotel that was written in English. What they intended to say, I have no idea, but what they wrote in English was, guests are required not to smile or to do other disgusting behaviors in bed. I'd like to introduce today's guest, who's Doug Hartley. And Doug's interest in Asian cultures and business dates to age 16, when he represented his home city of Calgary on a trade and business development campaign to Atami City, Japan. During that time, Doug saw the tremendous business opportunities in Japan and across Asia, especially for small to mid-sized Canadian and American companies. After graduating with an MBA in international business, Pacific Business, sorry, Pacific Basin Studies, in addition to 10 years of residential and executive level business experience across Asia, Doug returned to Canada to form Focus Asia Marketing. Focus Asia guides small to mid-sized companies to successfully enter Asian markets. The company provides services such as country market research, best fit prospect identification, introductions, and meeting facilitation. Doug is a strong advocate for companies to become well-prepared and educated in the cross-cultural differences and business practices between North America and Asia. Doug is married and has two children, both attending the University of Calgary. So welcome, Doug. Delighted that you are with us. Well, thank you very much, Philip. It's good to be here. Thank you. So uh, before we plunge in deeply, uh, could, perhaps you could tell us a bit about your background and how you grew up and how you gained your global experience. Well, I was born and raised here in, in Calgary, Alberta, which is uh, right next up to the Rocky Mountains in, in Western Canada. Uh, most of my family members were did very well in business, well-educated, uh, quite worldly in, in, in that respect. And I was able to experience, start to experience international, especially Asian uh, experiences at, at, at the young age, uh, like as you indicated, like when I was around 16 and going over to Japan and, and, and what that made a tremendous uh, difference in that I could see how different the Asian cultures were in compared to the North American culture. I, I, I had visited the U.S., from Canada, but our cultures are pretty close. So there wasn't that much of a, uh, a drastic difference. And uh, it really hit home to me how important culture was and the mindset of culture was uh, in, in any kind of dealing, whether that be in business dealings or with the, as a tourist or or, or or whatever, like as you op uh, opened with the the sign that says "No smiling in bed," I had to kind of chuckle at that. So yeah, I can I, I can see that definitely for sure. And I'll tell you from right, from right off the get go, I made a whole pile of goofy cultural mistakes 
but that's how we learn. But I had no idea of the, that culture whatsoever. But when I landed in uh, in Tokyo, brand new, a rude awakening, but nevertheless, very, very rewarding. Yeah. Um, perhaps you could share with us some of the goofy cultural mistakes that you made at a younger age, um, <laughs> and then um, it, you know perhaps some from an older age, your more <laughs> experienced self. Okay. Uh, during that trip, <laughs> we we wanted to make a group photograph of every, all of us, the, those of us from Canada and and the and the Japanese who were uh, kind of like helping us on our on our trip over there. So it was a group photograph. And so they were all, everyone was nice and ready and everything like this. And I was taking the picture and <laughs> I wanted them, I, I wanted to say cheese, you know, to get everybody to smile, right? But I didn't know the Japanese word for cheese. However, I, I, I learned from my English Japanese phrase book that the word for toilet was banjo, like not banjo, but banjo. So I said, okay, everybody, banjo. And I got this kind of stupid look from them and a smile. And I took the picture and I thought everything was fine. Well, a couple of days later, one of the Japanese fellows, he came over and he said, excuse me, but uh, do you know what banjo means? I said, well, yes, it means toilet. He says, well, not really. What it means is the effing blah, 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 S hole that you go in. And I thought, oh my God, no wonder I had these crazy looks. Yeah, so I sure learned from that one. And one of the biggest lessons I took away from that was that, you know, is we rely on these, on the English, Japanese, or Korean translate, these dictionaries, mm -hmm. you know, and they, or even a Google translate, which we have now. And those are those are the dictionary definitions, right? Which is okay, but what you really need to pay attention are what they call the idiomatic differences. Yes, I didn't know that Benju actually meant that effing effing, you know, hole where we do our daily business. I thought it was toilet, so <laughs> well, that was a bad. One. I learned from that one in a hurry. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um well, by the way, the Japanese word for cheese is chizu. <laughs> now you tell me, okay. An important word because they don't have it indigenously. So they use the <laughs> English word for it with the Japanese pronunciation. All right. um, hamburger, hamburger, yeah, yeah. Um, and the other aspect, of course, is that uh, normally when you see pictures of Asians, they don't smile um, because, you know, smiling is very Western, but, um, mm. and they, some well, I know the Russians do this, but um, it, the Asians, I think, think if that you smile, you're something, you're, you're trying to hide something, you're, you're um, yes. suspicious, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah. So normally, if you see pictures of Asians, they don't smile at all. They're they don't afraid. smile, yes, and they have to have the very calm and cool demeanor. Yes, from the outside. Yes. That's right. And it's, it's similarly that I learned that if in... in uh, in Korea and in, in Japanese society, if if a foreigner is really, really good in Japanese or Korean, they may impress their English friends, but the Japanese and Koreans they get a little bit of suspect on that, you know, because mm. hey, well, maybe he knows a bit too much, maybe he right. understands too much, you know. Right. You can't have that. You can't have that. 
And they think that their language is so difficult and so unique that there's no way any Westerner could possibly get their head around it. Right? Yeah. Well, and I think to learn these languages on my own, I know it's not easy. Yeah. It's tough. It is very, very tough. Yes. Um, but I, I'm sure, you know, there are a lot of foreigners who live in Japan and Korea for many years. And so they, of course, master the language and are right. more or less native. Yeah. Um, right. And they know the language beyond just the dictionary definition. Yes, of course. Um, and this is uh, as a plug for our own company, Auerbach International, which yes. does translations into 120 languages at least. Um, this is a very good reason not to rely on Google Translate or pocket translators. They're very good for travel um, and for very simple phrases. But when you get into anything colloquial, as you were illustrating, or um, certainly anything technical that can have multiple meanings, uh, yeah. they are not good. So that's where professionals right. come in. That's right. Very so, true. Um, so perhaps you can talk about, from your business point of view, Focus Asia, on some of the successes you've had and what made them successful? Um, some of our successes have been worth uh, working with uh, companies actually in the natural cosmetics industry here in, in Calgary and in the US, uh, be able to introduce their products in a number of uh, Asia Pacific countries. Mm. And we were able to do that uh, primarily through uh, uh, using a lot of social media and, and influencers so that it test, uh, test the markets as far as whether that particular product was uh, uh, going to be popular or sell well in, in whatever particular uh, Asian culture we were looking at. We would do a lot of research uh, prior to that to identify what we think were the best fits for that particular product or that particular uh, uh, company. And there was quite very effective, you know, that we were able to get some data in uh, real you know, honest to God, demand, level of demand data, so that uh, we would be, go back to our clients and say, okay, well, this is the market we'll go in, and that's what, and then we'd go from there. Hmm. Were there any differences of cultural adaptation? Uh, for example, you know, certainly when cosmetics are sold to Asian women in Canada or the, or the U.S., yeah. um, the formulas are perhaps made, you know, with Asian women in mind. Yeah. But do, do Asian women deal with cosmetics differently in any way? Do the products have to be adjusted for Asian, I don't know, complexions or Asian hair or Asian uh, styles that Westerners yeah. don't have? Yes, they do have to be adjusted to, 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 a, to a degree. Mm -hmm. uh, the Asi Asians are, seem to, well, they're very, very in tune with uh, more natural than maybe we are over here. Uh, and that uh, they're, they're real stickler for, you know, synthetics or chemicals or anything like that. So we have to watch, you know, when you're exporting into these countries to make sure that it's very, very, very plain that the ingredients have, honest to goodness, authentic, natural ingredients. That's what they're really looking for. And also, it's, uh, you need to be able to alter your, your, your products uh, physically. Uh, depending on where you are. Like, for example, uh, the women's complexion in Northern Thailand is quite significantly different than what it would be in Southern Thailand. Oh. Right? Or we know that in, uh, we'll keep with Thailand again, that uh, men have very, very, have very few, few skin blemishes, but the women do. Really? 
And the women will have lots of, you know, acne and pimples up to the age of maybe 19, 20 or so. And then it dramatically drops off. That's and that the people and the, and, and that the individuals who are living in more of the rural areas, their skin uh, uh, complexion problems are, are virtually none compared huh. to those who would live in, in Chiang Mai or, or Bangkok. That's fascinating. Or, or you can, ex, uh, or you can, uh, along the similar vein, uh, in Korea, for example, in the Seoul area, women have typically very, very oily, oily skin, more so than they would maybe in the middle part or, or in the southern part, or down near Pusan, Changwon. My wife is from Pusan, and, I, and I'll say, Uni, is your skin oily? She says, yes, it's oily, but not quite to the degree as someone who, a soul from, a soul person would be. So that's, knowing that kind of information is really, really handy for, you know, exporters to go in because they know, well, let's see if I have a particular product that's going to address the oily skin more so than right. another skin condition. That makes a big difference and, and, and how they target it, how they position it. Another big difference, I think, of course, is in packaging and whether that, and, and they're moving more towards like natural packaging, like using a bamboo or, or, some, or, or a hemp type of a, uh, of a box or whatever the case would be. And that the, uh, that, the, that the makeup or the product itself has to be such that when it goes into the environment, it's not going to mess everything up because they're very, they're really, very concerned about you know, the environment and the economy, their ecology, and, and all that stuff. And I, I can certainly understand, appreciate that. It's just a little sidetrack. When I was in Japan, when I was a kid, the uh, river going through Tokyo didn't flow; it was stagnant, mm, and yes. it was it had just like a green, oh, a layer of what a green scum or whatever it was. I don't remember if you remember that <laughs> that movie, soil green or something, but it was. Ugh. And I was told if someone actually fell in the river at that time, they wouldn't even bother to go looking for him. That person would die. He would probably, yeah, or he would obviously die and he would be dis, dis, disintegrated with all the chemicals <laughs> up and everything like that. That's yeah, terrible. Whoa, holy moly. And then when I went back years later, the, the, the river is flowing. There's guys out there fishing. Oh. And I thought, good, wow, what a change. So it shows you what man can do if they put their mind to it. Absolutely. But nevertheless, I see these guys fishing, and I think, well, okay, I don't know if I'd want to eat that fish, nevertheless. <laughs> but there was actual water, and it flowed. You know, mm. It's actually actual flow. So That's fascinating. Just out of curiosity with the cosmetics, mm -hmm. um, do you think the differences are functions of like pollution in the cities versus less pollution in the countryside, or what would cause the oily skin or the mm -hmm. pimply, the acne one place and not another? I think it's it, it's uh, it has a lot to do with the with the, the, the air quality, the air the, quality, oh. their air quality, and the amount of soot and right. and, and, and and dirt, you know, in, in the uh, on the grounds, on the roads, and things like mm. that. It also has a lot to do, I think, with the amount of humidity there is too. Isn't the humidity the same nationwide? No, no, it, it changes. There, there's, you know, it's, I'd say Vietnam is as, as, as humid as, as humid as, as maybe Thailand. But then again, it really depends on where, on where you go. I know that in, in Korea, Pusan uh, was much more humid than like Seoul. And mm -hmm. it's, 
it's what two and a half hours right. away. Yeah. This is the same distance from uh, us going from Calgary to our provincial capital in Edmonton. Uh, was it two and a half, three hours away? Right. And there's a bit, and, and there's a big difference. Huh. But environmental factors certainly, certainly draw it. And another thing as well is that there's so much uh, exposure now to to computer screens that that is making an impact on on skin as well. Huh. Just from the just from the glare of of, of the screens. Oh, and that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. When I've been in Asia, it's um, you know, you go from north to south, it's equally as humid and miserable. So I never <laughs> noticed the differences in the degrees of humidity. Um, mm. And that's fascinating to know. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, what about some? I, I guess have you heard of any? business blunders you, you gave some wonderful examples of the cosmetic industry and the successes they've had um do you have any stories that you know of of when u.s or canadian or other foreign companies have entered asia and really screwed it up kind of really screwed it up really screwed oh. it up. <laughs> i can i can tell you about an incident that that i know of with a company that i was worked with that Sure. Potentially really screwed it up, but we caught it at the last second. That's all right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Uh, in uh, in Korea, I was working for one of the top uh, manufacturers of, of, of excavators, diggers, you know, the tracked oh. ones and the wheeled ones and everything like this. And we had uh, got word from our engineering department, there's this brand new innovation with the engines, especially the spark plugs. And that this innovation something with the spark plugs would make the firing of the spark plugs, move the piston that much easier and more efficient. Therefore the, the engine would have more power and fuel costs would be lower. And so this is a wonderful, great, wonderful fest. So we had lots of markets in, in the Spanish speaking countries. So I wrote out the content and I needed it to be translated into Spanish. Our, our office was about a block away from the Spanish embassy. So I thought, well, okay, I'll just walk it down to the Spanish embassy. And I'm sure that they have a translator somewhere there who can translate this correctly. Mm-hmm. So off I go and I give, give the two and they said, okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And so I come back to pick it up and I said, oh, this is wonderful, wonderful. But I don't, I don't really speak Spanish at all, right? Not much, if any. But I thought, well, I think I'd better get this thing back translated to make sure that it is what it is. It's a good and thing. That translation means to take the translated version and put it back into English. Exactly. So it went from English to Spanish. Now we're going to go Spanish back to English because we want to make sure that the, we got the same message here. Yes. So the message that we got back was that this new innovation, this spark plug innovation, it would basically blow up the engine and blow up you along with it. <laughs> like kapow. I don't think this, that would have not gone down too well. No. <laughs> not at all. And so oh, good, good grief. It's a good thing I caught this one. Yeah. Because you know, there's always that, there's always that, uh, you know, this, that tendency, well, okay, well, this looks good. This looks good. Oh, I think I'll go with that one. Right. right? And you would know, Phil, for yourself and your, in your industry, like, that's a no, no, you don't no. do that. You got to back translate maybe once, twice, however many times, make sure you got it right. 
Well, we touched a big blunder on that one, I'll tell you. That's a wonderful story. Um, the, the The way that it's done professionally, first of all, you illustrated a wonderful point. Um, most people assume that if you that if a person speaks a language, mm. he or she can translate it. The issue okay. becomes that the people in the Spanish embassy, of course, they're diplomats, um, and maybe they're specialized in trade and they're specialized in agriculture, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And hopefully, they speak that that terminology. Each industry, right. of course, has its own terminology. You know, real estate and medicine and all of that. Yeah. Um, but my experience is that dip- diplomatic translators or diplomatic interpreters who do spoken communication yep. as opposed to written um, yep. are really terrible at doing technical um, because they don't know the terminology of that industry. Right. So in professional translations, what we do and the, the proper way to do it is first to hire linguists who have master's degrees in the art of translation, those mm-hmm. who work full time in the art of translation, like and who have at least 10 years experience, and most right. importantly, who speak that industry terminology. Absolutely. So if they're speaking, you know, if it's, this is about excavators, then they yeah. need to speak engineering terminology. Exactly. And therefore, when you do it the first time, and through the process, we always use two translators, one to do it, one to check it, then yeah. you can be guaranteed that it's done correctly. But right. to rely on diplomats is not a very good... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, very, very, very much so. And and the learning the learning that we got from that, because I got from that, was exactly the same as what you're saying. That if I'm going to have a an interpreter or a translator uh, working on behalf of a, of a client or whatever, they need to be uh, knowledgeable of the terminology in that particular industry. Yes, you know, because if if they're an expert on carpet laying and and I want them translating something about dental surgery. It may not come back as well. <laughs> we can carpet your tongue or your foot, but that's true. This does not quite compute. It doesn't quite compute, but it looks good on paper. Isn't it? That's fascinating, too. Um, so you, you gave the wonderful example with cosmetics about how the companies did adjust. Is this advice that you gave them, or when you have a client that is entering a new country or culture that perhaps you're not aware of. Let's say, well, Myanmar is not not a great example, but let's say um, Indonesia. And let's say you don't have a lot of experience there, although you've studied in Bahasa, Indonesia. Yeah, Yeah, I live there. How would you you advise a company, in, in your case, for Focus Asia, how would you advise to proceed in that case? Well... I like to, and we do what we call a country notebook study, which are very intensive. And we look at things from culture to language to economics, demographics, geography, infrastructure, all that stuff. It's actually quite intensive. Right. And we we'll use that, we we'll use that as kind of our landing pad, our, our source, our resource. Mm-hmm. And we do that for for every cl- country. On an a company, on an individual basis, what do they want to do? What they want to get, and then we'll use that as a our starting point out to assess. Okay, now, uh, what country is going to work the best? Which country is not going to work the best? Hmm. And from that point, uh, that puts the company and, and us in a position to say, okay, well, this is going to work in Indonesia, but this is not going to work so well in in Singapore. 
Uh, so, you know, you don't want to go with a blanket approach, right. but, but quite often, uh, you know, you'll find that there's maybe some, some little minor adjustments that you could do per market, but we like to look at each particular market on its own. And from there, uh, the company is able to say, okay, well, this makes sense to us, mm. you know, and then, and then go from there. And then, and then at the end of that, uh, our clients will have, they'll have a little preliminary marketing plan. And, and a direction. Okay, this is where we this is where we want to go, and from that point, then we'll then we'll uh, do some more legwork and find out. Okay, now hmm, this company over here would work. That company over there, maybe not so much. And then we develop a basically a wish list of companies who we, we think would be good contenders, and then go from there. So we do a lot of prep behind the scenes. That's wonderful. Um, and do you extend, do you just focus on East Asia or do you go to South Asia as well? India, Pakistan, uh, Northeast to Southeast Asia. Northeast Asia, I mean, uh, Japan, Japan, Korea. Korea. Uh, outside of China, not have that much experience with China, but mostly Southeast Asia, you know, okay. Thailand, Malaysia, uh, Indonesia, Singapore, Vietnam. It's wonderful. Um, what other uh, cultural blunders or different differences or difficulties have you come across? If anything. One of the big ones I think is that I came across is that first of all, the pace of doing business is, is a lot different. You know, here in North America, we like to like right to the point. Mm -hmm. Hi, how are you doing? Okay, let's sit down and let's talk business. Right. In, in Asia, that's not going to work. You can try it. But it's not going to go very far. Like right. there, you probably know that old expression that says you can sell to the Japanese easily once, but twice that's a different matter. Mm. That's a whole different kettle of fish. Yes. So one of the challenges I think is that for Westerners, we want to go in there thinking that okay, well, yeah, there's some differences there, but really it's all about the bottom line, isn't it? It's all about the sale. It's all about the profit and everything like that. Well, yes, sure, it's about the profit in these countries or in these cultures, absolutely. But, you know, in Asia, they want to they wanna get to know you first. They want to say, okay, if I'm going to do business uh, with this company out of, out of U.S. or Canada or whatever the case, I want to make sure that I actually, I want to do business with these people, that I can trust them. Right. I want to have to, you know, I can, I can fully build a relationship and I can trust it. And then from there, then we can go on uh, from there. Like uh, typically we'll say at minimum, we like to have, well, at least two, maybe three zoom meetings for the prospect in Asia, you know, before maybe jumping totally into better or going wherever the case would be with them. Right. That first meet, that first meeting I coach my my clients. Don't even bring up anything about your product or your company. Mm. You mention it, but that's for them to get to know you on a personal basis. Mm. Let's know about you. Let's know about Philip. Let's know about his background. Let's you know uh -huh. he's been to Alameda. Okay, he's Alameda. That's the kind of thing that that they want to know because then they feel more comfortable with you. And it's on the second or the third meeting where then you can say, okay, now. I'm going to talk a little bit more about my company or about my service. Because if you rush too quickly, they'll think, hey, well, what a second here. Hmm. Maybe they're not quite fair dinkum, right? Mm -hmm. They right. want to get want to get a want to get a feel for it. Very different from here in, in, in Canada, anyways, that 
that uh, sales is all about getting in there, knocking on the door. Hi, how are you doing? My name is Jeff. Your name is Frank. Okay, we met each other for five minutes. Let's get down and talk turkey. Right. Well, first of all, there's not too many turkeys in Asia, I'll tell you that much. But nevertheless, <laughs> that just doesn't, it doesn't work. Right. It has to be built up, you know, slowly. And another big thing, of course, I'll just maybe add this to a little one, is that it's so important. It's so important to be familiar with just the basics of the different cultures. So you'll know this absolutely. Yes. I can't remember. I don't can't count the number of times that I would I'd see really well-meaning Western companies come in and don't they haven't really prepared all that much for the, the cultural differences. Hmm. And then they wonder, hmm, well, how come that didn't quite go as well as we thought it was? It's so important. So important. I was speaking with uh, just a couple of weeks ago with the, a lady here in Alberta who was one of our former ministers of uh, provincial ministers of trade going back and forth. And she had done a lot of work in Asia and we were uh, we were trading war stories. And she said it beautifully. She said, you know, if you don't pay attention to the cultural aspects of dealing with Asia, you know, if you don't do that, you just might as well shut up and go home. Right. It's just that, it's just that important. Yeah. Very, very true. Very, very important. Um, do you notice any differences between Canadian and U.S. business styles? Or are they pretty much the same? There are some subtle differences, I think. I think we Canadians are a little bit slower to get on track sometimes as, as the Americans. Mm -hmm. I think the Americans are, are, are a little bit more direct than we Canadians, but we're catching up. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad that you're no, catching. No, that's good, or, that's good or, or good or bad either. I think Americans are much better at marketing themselves than Canadians. Huh. And, and, and American companies, from what my observation is, is that they're much more open to, to new markets rather than Canadian companies. Rather and than I was, I'm sorry, rather, rather than, than what? Canadian companies. Ah, okay. No, Canadian companies, uh, they're starting to come around now, but... In my view, they should have come around to that 40 years ago, but that's another story. Very fascinating. Um, I presume your life is not all business. What do you like to do in your free time? What, what gets you excited? <laughs> what gets me excited? Well, I like to play golf, uh -huh. although I'm not very good at it. I, I like playing it. But you see, we only have a very limited season here. Right. <laughs> right? Yes. It's very limited. Although there's some people who play snow golf, and I've never tried that. What is uh, snow golf? Playing golf? Well, that's, where you, that's where you spray paint the ball black, and you <laughs> hope that you can find it, you know, if you hit it off the tee box. <laughs> but, uh, I think they, apparently they do that way up north, the northwest uh, territories in the Yukon. Wow. But I like to, I'm a golfer. I like to hike in our mountains. Mm, good. And I, and uh, it's so close to here, about maybe 60 minutes of that. Uh, hanging out with the kids. I'm a big hockey fan. Uh -huh. Yeah. We, uh, it's a heart attack every season, but nevertheless. <laughs> From the hockey, of course. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I like to golf. And I just like to play racquetball, hike around, yeah. spend time with the kids, mow the lawn again and again and again. <laughs> As long as you can see it when there's no snow over it. Exactly. Exactly. Sure. Then you want to let it grow really, really high, and then you <laughs> get the neighbor to cut it. <laughs> That's wonderful. 
before we close, is there anything else you'd like to share? Just the, just how important uh, international export trade is to companies of all sizes, and that there's there's opportunities, you know, out there for 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 all sorts of things, and that when companies make the decision to go international, I basically think for me, in my case, in, in Asia, you know that they get some guidance. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's and, and I'm finding that a lot of smaller than medium-sized uh, companies, you know, they'll think, gee, you know, there's this great opportunity over there, but I really don't really know how to get started. Because mm. it's a big challenge for them. Yes. And quite often, and quite often the decision makers will say, wow, I really want to go over there. And they, geez, I wonder if my gadget will work. But the, I know that there's a lot of background research to do, but I don't have the time to do it because I'm too busy putting out fires in 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 in, uh, in Milwaukee or whatever the case would be. Right. And another factor is that uh, quite often they may not have anybody on their staff mm. who's yeah. actually got some real Asian experience and and or just international over, experience. Right, international experience and and going over and hanging out in in. Uh, you know, in the beaches in Thailand for two weeks at a resort is great, but it just doesn't quite cut, you know? Right. It's not exactly and international business. Not quite exactly international. Yeah. But there are, oper- you know, there's lots of opportunities out there for companies provided they, you know, they get some assistance. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess the last point I'd, you know, I'd say is that uh, uh, recently I read or heard just that in the next, what, four or five years, that 66% of the world's middle income families, people, will be living in Asia, in the Asia Pacific. 66%. Ooh, that's a ton of people. That's a ton of people. And that tells me or shows the tremendous amount of opportunities that are over there that people can tap into. But if they're going to do it, they got to do it right. They got to do their homework, cross their T's, dot their I's. And then when they do that, the chances of them going in there and doing well are, are very, are good. But was that they figure that 90 to 95% of Western business failures can be traced back to very simple blunders in, 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 in etiquette. In etiquette. In etiquette. Huh. Really, really simple. You know, a, a common one would be like the business cards. Everybody knows that, oh, you're supposed to give the business cards with two hands. All right, that's good. But never once think, okay, what are you going to do with the business card after you get it? Right. You put it in your left side or do you put it on the right side of your jacket? Or you always you... put it on the left side because it's closer to the heart. This means more sincerity. If you put it on the right side, they think, hmm, you don't respect me. Hmm. How do we know that? Um, and also you take the time to read the business card. Absolutely. Which North Americans don't do. You get the card, you immediately put it in your pocket, and maybe you'll look at it later. That's right. And when you're in a country like Korea, where basically the <laughs> most of the percent, uh, high percentage of the population are come from about 13 different family names. Mm, yes. Park, 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 Kim, 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 Kim. Yeah. Or Mr. E or Mr. Whatever. And you have SJ Park, MJ Park, you know, no park, whatever the case would be. And you're and they're all lined up to you. Who is who? 
Yeah. If you don't, you know, and you don't write that in front of them when they're there, you're going to go back to your hotel and hmm, let's see that guy. And the other part with business cards, of course, is that the, the title is very important because it oh, shows yeah. the position in the hierarchy. And we're American, we're North Americans don't care as much about titles. Um, it's, and I advise clients also, um, if you're the man, if you're the marketing manager, when you go to Asia, you can elevate yourself by being the marketing director because it gives you more prestige, um, That's right. obviously with the approval of your home company, but right. the, the, the higher you are in the hierarchy at your home company, right. the more respect you will gain in Asia among the Asians. That- that's right. And, and, if, and you're, on your first junket, go over in Asia. Uh, if you're dealing with a, a pretty large company in Japan, for example, don't expect to be sitting down with the CEO. No, no, there's no way you're going to be sitting with someone at, 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 at a lower level. And if you are with the CEO, usually the person does not talk much or certainly make the decision. Not much. Because um, the person is partially a figurehead and partially a lot of it is by consensus, right? Absolutely. And it's got to go through all through the layers. Everyone's got to agree to it. That's why it takes so much longer yes. to, to get everything, the deal, quote, signed. But then when it is signed, you got tremendous buy-in rather than we have a three or four people at the top and everybody else is kind of worried, what the heck is going on? Yeah. Absolutely. That's fascinating. Well, thank you so much for your wonderful insights. It's extremely well, helpful and well, very practical it. and useful. I hope I hope I hope the listeners will will uh, enjoy and get something out of it. I, I certainly know that uh, you know it's. I love it over there. It's a great, great experience, and and it's such a tremendous uh, business opportunity. Mm-hmm. Pretty well, everybody. If they decide, okay, well, let's 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 take the next step. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Doug. It's a wonderful pleasure. Uh, we, this interview has been with Doug Hartley of of Focus Asia. And this has been Philip Auerbach. Please join us again next week for another edition of Global Gurus and their stories of international business. Thank you. Thank you.